you can join the fight to defend employee-funded and association PACs by texting NABPAC to 52886. Message and data rates may apply. Welcome back to the Facts About PACs. I'm Michaela Isler, NABPAC's Executive Director, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Adam Belmar. And this is episode 63 of the number one PAC podcast in America. You know, Michaela, the legislative fog that we talked about with Andy Jones from Federal Street Strategies in our last episode is lifting faster than I expected. You know, as we come on the air today, Friday, December 10th, 2021, the debt limit increase has suddenly been handled in the Senate. The NDAA is locked in at a higher level than President Biden requested, and the government's funded through next February. Yeah, Adam, and while question marks still remain on the Build Back Better social spending package, the stars are not aligned to see that move before the end of the year, Adam. And just like that, things are winding down in Washington, D.C. for 2021, which is why we are lucky to have Stephen Billet back on the show with us today. He holds a Ph.D. in government and international affairs from the University of Notre Dame and is a recognized expert in U.S. campaign finance and PAC management. Steve joined us on our first episode of the year on President Biden's first full day in office and in the wake of the events of January 6th. And today we'll get Professor Billet's thoughts on his own predictions and what the tale of the 2021 tape should tell us all about the year ahead. The Facts About PACs podcast is produced especially for the members of the National Association of Business Political Action Committees. In every episode, we recap this week's SNAP activities, share actionable intelligence and best practices, all while connecting the PAC community. And today's episode is brought to you by Access Marketing Services. From design to podcasts, from infographics to digital, work with the team that leading PACs and government affairs programs call when they need results. Access Marketing Services. Thanks, Adam. And as always, thanks to Access Marketing Services for all of your great work on our behalf in 2021. And joining us now is the wise man of PACs, Stephen Billet. <laughs> Welcome back to the podcast, Steve. I'm not so sure about that title, but always a pleasure to be with you and Adam and to work with NABPAC. Well, Steve, in January, when we last spoke, hard to believe, you told our listeners that the old litmus test for good corporate citizenship, providing jobs, paying taxes, is not a luxury that will be available to PACs going forward. And I'd say that you hit that nail on the head, truthfully. Is the new reality you discussed back in January, namely that corporations are now expected to play a leading role in the defense of our democracy, holding true? Absolutely. And I, I, I think that the events of the last year, our near whole year, bear that out. You know, the business community, if I could use the metaphor, is swimming in a pool where the other institutions that prop up our democracy are struggling to keep their head above water. The Congress, the press, our electoral system, all of these organizations, all of these phenomena in, uh, that are part of our government, uh, grounded in our constitution in many instances, are in the midst of a crisis of legitimacy. The business community, I believe has demonstrated tremendous resilience over the course of the last year and holding themselves together. I think this is certainly evident in the way they've conducted or managed to conduct their government affairs operations during the pandemic, certainly in the way they've responded 
to the challenges in the PAC community. I think they've shown a tremendous resilience. NABPAC, I think, has been part of the story there, frankly. I think that you guys have stepped up to the plate and reached out and really tried to get people organized. So I think the business community has done a tremendous job. But if you look at survey data, going back over the last couple of years, but certainly data from the first of the year, one of the things you find is that faith in our institutions of government have been in decline. And there's not a whole lot to suggest that that's going to change anytime soon. When you talk about institutions and this crisis of legitimacy, is there a broad failure to recover here? It feels like the zenith was reached in January, but the ramifications of this undermine of confidence in institutions really lingering, Stephen. Well, I think it's not only lingering, but if you look at the variables that have brought us to this point, it wasn't just January 6th. It was the polarization and the partisanship that we've seen emerge over the course of the last couple of decades. It's the general loss of trust in government. And that is grounded, I believe, in some of the populism that has taken hold here in the United States. That is, I believe, grounded in some of the economic inequalities that exist in our nation. If you take all of that and then you combine it with a crisis like January 6th or going back to the financial crisis from 2008, it undermines further the feelings of the American public about their government and about their government's ability to step up to these issues. Steve, I'm curious, you know, we have seen a lot of CEOs talk about corporate social responsibility and have been very engaged in CSR work. And we're seeing this emergence of sort of CEO activism, speaking out on very complex and polarizing social issues. How much do you think that's impacted to where we are as, as a country? I think that it's part of the expectations that are out there in the public. I think they have to do it, or many of them feel as though they have to do it. And it's not just from my generation or your generation. I think a lot of them are looking at the youth today and looking what they think about government. And frankly, if you look at the attitudes of millennials or Generation Z, I think what you find is that they're not very pleased with government. They expect more from us than they're getting or what they're seeing. And that's a problem. If you're looking at your long-term marketing programs and you're looking, you know, you're marketing to people that are, you know, anywhere from 18 to 40 years old, they have different attitudes about what the expectations ought to be for government. And they include, in some respects, a more activist government than what we see and what is preferred in older generations. Let's talk about changing relationships. I think we've really touched on changing attitudes, but what do our listeners need to know about the changing dynamics, Steve, of the political relationship between business and the GOP? Well, obviously, that's an issue that the business community is going to struggle with and the GOP is going to struggle with. But one of the things we've seen is that, and there's a a move afoot, or there were a couple of announcements in the last few weeks that You know, there are people in the Republican Party who feel as though the business community isn't fully aligned with them or aligned at all with them. And that they're thinking about or proposing that they pivot a bit and align themselves 
more directly with the working class. And you could see this emerge a bit in the presidential campaign efforts on behalf of the Trump campaign in particular to align that way. They've been pretty effective in aligning themselves with white working class males in particular and enhanced, I believe, their relationship there. Since the former president is there, it looks as though the rest of the party may move in that direction in the meantime. So that then raises a question of, well, maybe the Republican Party is not properly aligned right now. It's like I've always said, and you've heard probably a hundred times, Republican members of Congress supported the business community because they wanted to, and the Democrats supported them because they had to. That may be changing a bit now. And as corporations become more socially responsible, more responsive to especially some of the younger generations, you could see some tectonic changes in how parties are aligned with particular elements of our society. You know, Steve, the business community, though, you know, has, I think, at least in the last 20 years, from my perspective, and I'm curious what your perspective is, has really been moving more towards finding the pro-business candidates that they can support from either side of the aisle. Most of our PACs do really give roughly 50-50 RD. There's, yeah. you know, depending on who's in control, sometimes it's 60-40. But has the business PAC community, do you think, positioned themselves to be able to weather this change in relationship with the GOP? Oh, I think they have. Because in the final analysis, I think that there are Republican candidates that are going to continue to come to the business community and look for support. I think, too, and this is I maybe even more important when it comes to the relationship between candidates and the small business community, uh, which is one of the elements of that proposal I saw a couple of weeks ago. So frankly, at this point, I think the PAC community is in a pretty good place. And I think because they have genuinely committed themselves to nonpartisan giving over the years, you know, they, they're able to defend themselves. They're able to step up and say, this is what we stand for. And if you include in that a defense of the most important institutions in our constitutional democracy, you know, they put themselves in a very good place. And I think perhaps even more important, you put themselves in a place where they're able to make the pitch to their employees of what it is they stand for. I mean, you've seen the data on this, on the survey work that's been done, where employees get a lot of their political information, really important political information from their employers. Okay. From my perspective, PACs need to continue to play in that arena and to leverage that particular relationship as they move forward. Steve, you are a professor as well as an author. And I want to know when you get in the classroom, and I know you do this frequently, what are you hearing from your grad level students about their attitudes, the folks who are coming up next into this world? What are their attitudes towards political advocacy and campaign finance right now? Well, I anticipated this question based on our earlier discussions. And I asked the question on Tuesday evening with my class, 15 undergraduates. These are juniors and seniors, Generation Z and ask them the question, okay, you guys are gonna be out in the real world working in businesses, many of you. How are you gonna respond when the PAC director comes around and asks you for a contribution? What we found was that about three quarters of them in their initial response said, no, I'm not gonna contribute. Now, 
I think what that really suggests is that there's a lot of work to do because a lot of them maybe weren't all that certain. And once they find themselves in a corporate environment, they may be more responsive once they understand in the company how important the pack is. That goes back to what we were talking about earlier when I mentioned employer to employee communications. One of the things I always hammered my students on and something I've always thought was very important in the PAC world was that they communicate more effectively and let people know what the PAC is all about, why it's important, and why it's a fundamental element in the government affairs operation and something important for the business community. So. You know, I I think that there's some work to do. The good news is that the business community has been there and done some of this already. So there's a foundation in place. And given the current circumstances, the business community may be in a really strong position because people are losing faith in some of the other institutions in our government, but maybe not quite as much in the business community. And you have some advantages there. Steve, I think you just made the case for all of our PAC managers listening that they ought to have something in those welcome new to the new employee packets about the PAC right out of the gate so that the second these new Gen Z employees come into the organization, they know that this is a critical part of what the company does or organization. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I've always been a fan of that particular move on the part of the human resources folks at the front end. It's a fight that every PAC manager needs to engage in, I believe. Well, and I think you've hit on something else with Gen Z, you know, and as we look at, as you know, NAPAC has been committed to really expanding the pipeline of understanding the PAC community, the PAC professional. Uh, We created a really robust diversity, equity and inclusion task force this year that has really leaned in on a three-year strategic plan to try to identify, recruit, educate, and build this new pipeline. And so through work that you're doing and others at other universities, we're partnering with College to Congress next year to really try to educate interns and others at the collegiate level about our profession. Just everything you've said today illustrates it's imperative. And if we're not focused here, that it's going to have long-term effects in the business community. I couldn't agree more. I think you're in the right place there. You know, in fact, I I had in my notes earlier work in the DEI area because it is important uh, in the Generation Z uh, arena and among that population. And it's obviously something that we all have to become more and more aware of, I think, as we develop our government affairs operations, PAC operations, and otherwise. Well, Steve, thank you once again for joining us on the Facts About PACs podcast. I do hope that you'll come back and join us. It's always a wonderful conversation. And thanks to everyone downloading and sharing the show. Subscribe and meet us right back here on the Facts About PACs podcast. <laughs>